You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Shedding our skins, we will be discussing Far Beyond Driven, the seventh studio album by Pantera. Produced by Terry Date, it was released on March 22nd, 1994 by East West Records. It debuted at number one on Billboard and was certified platinum by the RIAA. Far Beyond Driven is the first album where guitarist Daryl Abbott is credited as Dimebag Daryl, having changed his nickname from Diamond. Today, he has grown into a monster, an arrogant, explosive mother man from Australia, the host of Take My Tone podcast, Simon Blackburn. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you. I'm so glad to uh, finally appear on I Fucking Love This Record because... You appeared on my show, and I'll mention that uh, towards the middle of this episode. But yeah, I'm I'm really stoked to talk about a record that that you particularly love, um, and we'll find out, I guess, whether I love it or not too. Yeah, so that's right. I did uh, did your show. We talked about uh, an Australian band that you had suggested, um, whose name just flew out of my head. What was the name of the band? Uh, that you chose? Uh, something for Kate. That's right. Which was uh, which was a really great song. And then I, I did a. Um, John the Baptist from the Afghan Whigs, and mm-hmm. it was a really fun episode. I would encourage my listeners to go check it out. Cool. So, stick and run with our show here. How did Pantera's Far Beyond Driven enter your life? It is one of those albums that is always referenced alongside Vulgar Display, alongside Cowboys from Hell. There seems to be this sort of like, similar to Metallica, this kind of holy trinity of Pantera albums. And uh, I've I've often been you know long time metalhead as long as I've been into music in a serious way, and they've been a band that's always uh, popped up. They've influenced a lot of the artists I listen to, but funnily enough, I've never actually like I know a, a good amount of their songs, but I've never actually dedicated the time to to a de- to an album. And so because I've just, I just I I love the whole aspect of this podcast and what it's all about um and we're sort of trying to find a bit of middle ground between the two of us and you're like here's a record i really love you know here's a couple of pantera records i'm thinking cool this would be a great opportunity for me to go in and actually just go full pantera so uh, i went with far beyond driven just because um i think there's something about it might it's probably something to do with how often it's been referenced perhaps as to why I chose this over Cowboys. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to, to dissect this and uh, I've definitely been sort of like living and breathing it for uh, the past couple of weeks. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So I've been on the pan, I was on the Pantera train um, from Cowboys from hell. I never, I've never heard any of the stuff that they put out before then. And it's really hard to find. They kind of buried that on their official website. They don't mention it. Uh, you know, the six records, five records they put up before Cowboys from Hell with a different singer. Uh, and even the first one with uh, with Phil and Selmo, they don't talk about very much. Yes. So uh, I don't remember if it was, which exactly, which song exactly it was, but I'm sure it was being played on Headbangers Ball back in the day to kind of date myself. A buddy of mine went out and bought the CD almost immediately and we played the shit out of that record. <laughs> so we just, because it was, it was heavier than a lot of other stuff. You know, we were listening to a lot of thrash at the time. So me and my friend Mark Evers, I say hi to Mark there, uh, we're listening to, uh, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer. And this was heavy while being just different from thrash. Yes. But as heavy as thrash. It was, it's kind of hard to put my finger on. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So I really liked Cowboys from Hell, and for some reason, I didn't really get into Vulgar Display of Power, uh, and I don't even remember why. So it's this album I went back and listened to later and enjoyed, but when it was out, it just didn't do much. Okay. And I was working in college radio when Far Beyond Driven came out, and I was the metal director at the time. So I got this a little bit early, and it was just, I was on board immediately with this one. Uh, and when we get to the track by track, we'll talk about that. So I saw, I saw them... Many times. So we saw them on the Cowboy from Hell tour and a few different venues and ways. So, you know, like on still smaller. So at one point there was like this Florida metal fest in Orlando and it had this scat of 
local bands and they always had uh, like a professional headliner mm. and uh, not necessarily from Florida, obviously, because they're from Texas. So Pantera headlined this Florida metal fest that we saw and they were fucking great. And they just always were terrific live and then saw them a few times back to back. So I was working at college radio. So I had free passes and or free tickets and backstage passes. And it was just really cool. I was talking with my buddy about it this morning. Let's go ahead and jump into the track by track analysis. Side one, song one, strength beyond strength. Right off the bat. This is just announcing what's going on here because that guitar intro is what two seconds. You know, it's not like he's <laughs> kind of being flashy or showing off anything, and it's like, yeah, and it just bam right into it, just immediately, and it sets the tone not just for what's going to come on this record, but also I think in the culture. Uh, Pantera is very different from the new metal new metal bands. Uh, that would come up a little bit later, but not by much. And I think, again, how they're different from thrash, they're also different from new metal. And I know a lot of people put Pantera to, I think, power metal is what they were called for a while. Which which I would disagree with. Okay. Yeah, as a genre tag, I they've definitely, to me, fallen... Like, to me, groove metal, which that term sort of came later, is often um, assigned to Pantera and bands influenced by Pantera. And to me, it's almost like that halfway point between the origins of new metal and thrash. It's literally like, Mm -hmm. to me, the combination of the two. Whereas power metal, I often associate with like those really kind of cheesy bands singing about like dragon slaying and majestic, you know, beasts flying across the nether and all that sort of stuff. Um, (laughs) Yeah, which is not Pantera. So, um, but and then obviously Pantera also have the very southern fried bluesiness just melded into it, which I think really gives it that that groove. That's the groove part of groove metal. So um, that's at least what they are to me if you were to, to give them a subgenre tag. I would definitely agree with that because what I loved so much about Cowboys from Hell was the groove mm-hmm. and just how there was that boogie to it that you didn't get in regular thrash. Yes. Uh, and I think the thing is they kept getting heavier and heavier. So with the exception of a few tracks on here, I think they'd lost a bit of the groove that I think was so f- much fun on Cowboys from Hell. And I, I really think that that's pretty accurate that they bridge that gap between thrash and new metal. I, you know, that's a great way to put it. And because you, you can see in the middle of the song, like there's that breakdown section that you yes. wouldn't find on a regular thrash song. Exactly. Uh, but sounds good here. And, and obviously Phil comes from more of like a hardcore background as opposed to a metal background. And you can tell that by his vocal stylings. And then Pantera's are so marked by Dimebag Daryl's guitar. What did you think of this one? I think it's a vulgar display of Pantera's power. <laughs> so I would describe it. Um, it certainly matches up to the song title, Strength Be- uh, Beyond Strength. So I overall, with this album, and we'll get into it, I much prefer the the groovier or even like halftime aspects of Pantera, whereas this like is straight out the gate. It's like, it's fast. It is tapping into those, as you say, hardcore roots of Phil. But I love that they still introduce the slowdown parts. Around one minute, you get this tempo change, and Phil's just raw vocal over the top sounds really cool. Um, this is also just an introduction into the weird, off-the-wall guitar solos that you get from Dimebag and just the sounds. It's The guitar solo in this is so strange. It's like a, a harmonizer pedal or something similar to that. I think, in retrospect, I'm glad that more of the songs... Um, are, not, are not like this like as you said that sort of like pu- punk hardcore feel in terms of the speed but but the heaviness definitely brings the metal element to it and it is it is unrelenting it, it just smack you in the face great album opener but again i think just from my own personal taste i i sort of much more take to the songs that follow fair enough so let's go ahead and get into the one of those that follow track two becoming Yeah. 
what did you think of this one? Yeah, so that opening call and echo style of the main riff, so it's got that like high wah squeal, very much reminds mm. me of how um, Korn used two guitars, so we're referencing new metal, and obviously Dimebag just being the single guitarist, but it kind of brings that almost machine-like industrial repetition, and they're just writing this really cool line between weird guitar sounds and heaviness and groove, and that's where I think just as we said, that cross between the new metal and the thrash is just such an interesting mix to me. Um, I really like Phil's take on like a grunge style uh, vocal in the opening of the verse. It definitely feels like he's, I, I don't know whether he's intentionally channeling that, but just, I guess the way that he's, he's singing in that lower register and the pre-chorus has this really cool, like unstopping multi-take vocal which is, it's almost like he's constantly interrupting himself. And that is very much a, a way of vocal production that followed with a lot of metal bands, particularly ones that sort of exploded in the, in like the metalcore scene and things like that, where it's, it's like the vocals are just back to back that they can't actually record them all in one take. So they do the separate takes. So it sounds like this cool back and forth of the same singer. Yeah. And they do that a couple of times uh, here that like, they do some, some interesting things with layering the vocals mm. that I know I, I have a note of a little bit later, another song that does that. Uh, I really love the, the, you know, Marshall drums to start um, and obviously Dimebag Daryl gets a ton of credit for the sound of this band and you know but his brother on the drums doing some stuff in, some interesting stuff on this record absolutely and I even have in my notes here that that guitar squeal that you already brought up and that's such a, a, a marked part of his sound you know it's he's not throwing it off all the time but you know you're going to get something just chainsaw buzzsaw kind of <laughs> squealy thing going on that's really cool and i like you know i'm not a big lyrics guy but i like how this feels like this is all about their place in the metal world and just that you know becoming god-sized and the way he sings that line is is really cool i just i really love this song and i'm a little bit surprised because i know some of these songs later on get a bit long i was really surprised seeing that these first two tracks were you know three three and a half minutes long metal tends to be a little bit indulgent and and you kind of let it go because they're usually kind of showing a little flash and it's like mm -hmm, all right it's gonna mm -hmm. be a five, it's gonna be a five minute long song all right fine uh but then to see that these are these are a little more compact than i remember them being is has been pretty interesting and throughout the album they give you both sides of that they give you the seven plus minute and then they give you this the three minute and i think that's really cool like that the band can just kind of flex that muscle of like hey we're not all about short fast punk and we're not all about indulgent metal um so i think that's really cool i also think with this song is the best part that i find with the solos with pantera is they have this feeling of being like a tight ball of energy when they're playing all together then the solo hits and it's almost like it's it's pulled apart you know when you get like um I don't know, industrial kind of like renderings of machines and then you get the exploded view. That's what I feel mm -hmm. like it is when a solo happens because he's sitting so much far above the others in the mix and then you get to hear all the bass and the drums underneath, just that really like chunky bass. And because there is no added second rhythm guitar or anything, it just provides this really cool space while retaining its heaviness. And I think when bands do that, it's really important to me because then live you get that you don't get the letdown of there being a lack of that additional rhythm guitar that they've thrown in so um i think between that just hearing that for the first time and then the way that this song ends for me with uh as you said Vinny, so he's a dimebag's brother does excellent work on this album and those double kick rolls um really stand out at the very end and I was just like, oh, yes, yeah. yes, just absolutely love that. <laughs> so track three, Five Minutes Alone. And this is the song I feel really has some of that boogie 
that made Cowboys from Hell so appealing. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's big and bruising, so it's not quite what you would find on that first record, uh, but I think it's close. It has that groove to it. And I love the story behind this song, because apparently some kid got beat up at a Pantera show, and his father claimed that Phil Anselmo had incited the crowd to do that and had called management and said that he wanted five minutes alone with Phil. Yeah, right. And his uh, <laughs> and his manager said, uh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where this song comes from. And uh, and again, this is more a little beefier. You know, this is at the almost six minutes long. Uh, it does, but it doesn't feel indulgent once again. And I think a lot of that comes down to because there is just the one guitar which I hadn't really thought of until you mentioned it about how a lot of the bands that had a similar sound to this were going to have a rhythm guitar mm-hmm. and it's not, and I'm sure there's a bunch of tracking going on or whatever, but uh, it, it is just Dimebag. So uh, I think that's pretty, it's pretty impressive how, how much sound he really gets by all by himself. Mm. And I think that's a good, that's a good um, sort of testament to, to Rex as well. And like his sure. presence of bass um, just because those moments where the solos are, it's just, He's just holding down that that like the the low end and and that rhythm along with Vinny so well and I mean I love I love good low end uh, in my heavy music so yeah I definitely uh, give a uh, big ticks to that and poor Rex I mean you, you talk because Dimebag was such just I mean this was a guy who was a guitar hero from like the age of mm. fifteen or something ridiculous you know you know Vinny has had this reputation you know as the big drummer and then of course Phil was was uh, was a great front man mm-hmm. uh, and then you know it's hard enough being a bass player anyway and then when you <laughs> throw these three guys at you you know uh, and, you, and you're just going by Rex you know? <laughs> yes exactly yeah it's it's a little hard it's like unless you're like a a a, a Getty Lee or a uh, John Entwistle or a Les Claypool or something, you bass players often get overshadowed. Yeah. And the fact that he does a ton of work on this record, and mm. I think that tends to go overlooked because you're because you're looking at Dimebag, you're not noticing how much work Rex is really doing to keep that sound going. Mm, exactly. What did you think of this one? This is possibly my favorite on the album. As soon as it opens up, I'm like, welcome to Mosh City. I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm in it. I, the head is nodding from front to back. It, it doesn't let up. And I think sort of breaking down the song further, the, the vocal and riff pattern, um, the lock together in this is, is particularly evident. And a lot of bands that sort of surged in the late 90s and turn of the century uh, adopted this this sort of style of delivery. Um, the pre-chorus descending bluesy riff, I think, is really, really cool. In fact, there's actually a, a riff from a recent Slipknot album that is almost identical to this. And I, and I think that really goes to show how influential Dimebag's playing really was. Oh, yeah. And I'm also all about instrumental breaks and surprises. And this one gives you that and it makes for a really living breathing song like the whole thing feels like it's it never stalls it's just moving in all these different ways and to me this is like this is pantera on fire um and you get this simplified riff before the final chorus and it's almost like a breakdown without being a breakdown and it really lets the symbols shine in the mix and to me the last 45 seconds in this song is my highlight of the entire album. And what you have is you have this higher five minutes alone scream along the top, which kind of reminds me of, of bands I like, like Mudvayne. And then you get this riff variation that is introduced and it is so tasty that I think it's going to keep my chiropractor in business because I am <laughs> rocking hard on that one. It's And it's a fade out as well. Like it becomes a fade out, but it is just so... Damn groovy, but you want to be jumping around that I was like, this is infectious. I've literally had this song and that part in my head all day in preparation for this episode. (laughs) Uh, Well, what did you think about track four, Unbroken?
this may tie for the favorite. And that's what's really cool is I'm getting back-to-back incredible songs. And I actually recognize the opening of this song straight away. So this is like one of those songs I'm semi-familiar with. And I love the the guitar bends in this. It just really bleeds that attitude that Dimebag had, as I said earlier, like southern fried riffs. And, um, and you get more of that sort of interruption style vocal that we mentioned earlier. I really like the transition point around two minutes. It's really clever because you get this sort of repeated chug and then the drums kick in at this unexpected time. And I just love cool little transition points. So rather than having like an obvious stop, tempo change, whatever, they kind of blend it in. And I also think this is one of those, this is one of those sections where I don't head nod in the feel of the riff so i'm not sort of like bang, banging my head along to the riff but i'm actually doing it in double time so <laughs> what it ends up being <laughs> is more of like a goofy back and forth movement at double the time of the riff while i'm swaying left to right and i really feel like i need to video myself to explain it properly but that's often how i there's some thing that happens in certain groovy music that i just end up doing that naturally and this has got that um, and I also think just as we mentioned earlier with Rex, during the solo, Rex gets to shine as well. And that bass is so filthy in the best way. And the the squealing wahs that you get over the top from Dimebag is just pure awesomeness. So this comes so close to five minutes alone for me. Well, if you ever make that video, send it to me and I'll, I'll check that out on Twitter so, uh, <laughs> so we can understand what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> and I love the guitar intro. I love the way that the vocals are layered. And this is the one I was talking about where Mm. it's almost like you said, a call and response, the way he's, the vocals feel uh, a little bit like in the middle of the mix and the top of the mix and the middle of the mix and the top of the mix kind of thing going back and forth. And man, was this a great song live when Mm. we saw them on this tour uh, and we saw at least twice, if not three or four times we saw them for this, uh, for this record, man, was this one good. And, it's one of those, unfortunately, with the lyrics, he's talking about the issues that he was having with his back because he had two slip discs or something. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to his drug and alcohol troubles that, you know, eventually split up the band. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because this is probably my favorite song on the record. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's everything that you want from Pantera. It doesn't go on too long. So it's about, what, four and a half minutes and it's just it's great uh you know he wasn't a golden throat or anything but he he could do some different things with his voice and i think that's what really made it interesting and one of the things that i really love about that song and i think particularly with him all being like coming from new orleans and all that sort of stuff he's just and because of just how generally gruff and i guess macho in a way that he is he just did, he has that guttural element to the edge of his voice that really pushed him out as more of an aggressive singer compared to a lot of the thrash bands and thrash definitely has a lot of aggressive vocals but other thrash bands kind of push more to that higher register you know iron maiden influence type stuff so around the time so i think that also helped just not even for pantera by themselves but for metal in general because we sort of over time progressed the the level of of heaviness in terms of what a human can do with their voice yeah, like you said, the, their influence is pretty wide ranging in a, in a lot of different ways, and and his take on vocals is definitely part of that. Uh, now, obviously, the first Corn record I think came out the same year as this one, yes. if I remember yep. correctly. You know how much Corn was influenced by those first two Pantera records? I, I don't really know. I know that they have a Faith No More, a Faith No More influence. Yes, definitely. You know, you can tell that that somehow this definitely translated to what they were doing yeah i think a lot of the sort of like experimental guitar effects um and and the rhythmic bass stuff and and the groove bass stuff yes but you what you, i think what you do is if you take pantera and you pull all of the southernness out of their sound all the bluesiness and you inject a bunch of like chili peppers and faith no more and stuff and that's how you end up with more of the corn sound so it's kind of like sure. they're, they're they're teetering into the pantera without really sort of being it at all oh yeah i would agree i mean it's like i don't think corn you know ripped them off or anything but you can just you can feel that influence uh and that was you know in those waves and part of it not just the guitar sound which you had talked about earlier but also mm. kind of like the vocal stylings even though i think jonathan davis is doing something very different yes but i think what 
uh, Phil Anselmo was doing kind of opened the door for him to do that, if that makes oh, any yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's cool knowing that all this sort of stuff happening around the same time, like all these different sort of movements and branches occurring over the space of just like a couple of years. And then yeah. from there, you sort of then set like all the copycat bands and stuff that come afterwards. Yeah, that's how it always goes with music. You yes. Know? <laughs> <laughs> so track five, Good Friends and a Bottle of Pills. This one's a little bit odd. It's mm. kind of off-putting. It's yeah. most mostly spoken word, and the the music itself is the it. It's definitely Pantera, but it's different. It is a showcase for the rhythm section, that's for sure. So yeah. they're doing some interesting stuff there, and then just with those kind of random guitar things thrown out. I'll be honest. This is a song I have a tendency to skip. I, I literally noted that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the same wavelength as you. Yeah. So this is usually the one I skip, and it's not for like musically. I, I quite like it. There's definitely um, a really cool way that they sort of let the music spill over and their transition points. They do those super slowdowns with like using the snare as a signal and there's little guitar creeps. That's all great, but. I think it's the sleazy talk style vocals about how Phil wants to fuck that I just get really turned off by because it feels like he's just sleazily talking that into my ear, like he's leaning <laughs> over me or something. I'm like, I, it's like, Phil, yeah, you're a cool guy, but I don't really think of you that way. So interestingly, though, I found like that that sort of talk style delivery, I could feel the influence of that, of how that came off of um, like into... Uh, records like uh, Volume 3 by Slipknot Lane and they introduced that sort of type of stuff. It wasn't the sleazy I want to fuck stuff, but it was more the creepiness of it. Um, so, yeah. uh, so I appreciated that from a style perspective, but like the lyrics get quite sort of brutal and, 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 that, and teetering between brutal and sleazy at the same time. And I know that between that and it being sort of like a shorter number, it just felt like a middle, mid album filler to me so definitely one that i think could have hit the cutting room floor and yeah. would have not hurt this album one bit exactly okay so let's move on to track six hard lines sunken cheeks What did you think here? I love the use of the back and forth between this like slow ascending riff and then you've got this really like rhythmic, fast, mosh style verses. Um, I, I really like in, in the chorus, you've got the, the real slowdown and he's singing the my soul for a goat, yet I'll outlive the old. And vocally, that also, uh, particularly that line sounds uh, quite a bit like a band I really like, Mastodon. Um, so again, we're sort of seeing the different ways that Pantera influenced uh, bands that followed. I like the the return to the intro riff in the halfway point, and I really like the the solo in this one. It's quite emotional. It's got some yummy little sort of shred moments, but it's actually probably the most emotional solo on the album. Uh, and his sort of Phil's quasi rap delivery of the pre-chorus vocals are really cool. Um, and again, I sort of mentally made another note to, uh, as a reference to like a band like Mudvayne in terms of how that's delivered. Uh, and then you sort of end on this really trippy intergalactic fry sort of fade out. And it's just another neat little audio surprise that they throw in there. So yeah, pre pretty solid song. Um, not the best, but I was, I was definitely happy with it. And it feels like a, a bit of a return to normal after the weirdness of track five. Uh, it's got a nice riff and it, you know, it does do some interesting things here. My thing is, do I need a seven minute long song? And most of the time I can answer that with no. <laughs> is that just you sort of like personally in terms of like, like myself, I listen to a fair amount of 
prog sort of based bands. And so a seven minute sometimes doesn't really even feel that long to me. Um, and so is that more just because you you might steer away from sort of progressive style music or? Generally, yeah. I mean, there there are times when, and I, I've talked about this on a couple of recent uh, podcasts about different songs that are, are longer, you know, six, seven, eight minutes long. And sometimes the way a song gets to be that long is because they're using like movements like Metallica. I never really minded when Metallica had those seven, eight, nine minute long songs because mm. it felt like these classical music mo- uh, movements. Yeah. They kept you engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Or you would have a song like uh, to completely switch genres, but to go to Elton John with Indian Sunset, which is nearly seven minutes long, but it mm-hmm. feels like three songs in one. Uh, yes. Because there's, you know, there's three distinct parts to it. And sometimes you'll get a longer song that just, it's just a little bit longer and you don't even notice it. And, uh, and that's kind of cool. Uh, and this one, I just, I think after a while, because especially with heavier music, there's times when it works and then there's times when it's just like, uh, I need a, I need a little bit of a breather here and you're killing me with this seven minutes, you know? <laughs> uh, and I don't think it's that it's not necessarily bad. And, and, one of the things, again, being pleasantly surprised how some of these songs were shorter than I remember them being, mm. you know, this came out, like we said, this came out in 1994 and this was right when we were in the midst of what I like to think of the mid nineties bloat where people were no longer concerned with filling two sides of vinyl, but trying to fill up, you know, 78 minutes of a CD. Okay. And you get these songs that are like, you know, what I talked about in season two with angel dust from faith, no more, which I love that record. But that is a record that could have been two tracks shorter and then probably had about a minute and a half taken out of another half dozen songs and Mm. been a better record for it, you know, because I think it just sometimes it's just a bit too much. So and I was really expecting more of that because I hadn't listened to this album in a while. And so going back to it, I was I was happy to hear that I still liked it and that it didn't feel overstuffed. I think it's more um, the length of this is probably actually more to do with how slow those opening riffs and returning sections are like the like that ascending riff and that chorus is just so dramatically slow it's almost like if they pump that up uh, you know cut like 10 15 bpm or that you'd probably cut a minute off the song it's um so i don't think it's it's structurally like prog or anything like that really it's more just quite dramatic between the difference of these fast verses and then just real other slow parts that kind of like pull it down but i found it relatively memorable um didn't really have a problem with the with song lengths but that was a case of i did sort of look down i thought oh okay maybe i didn't realize pentera played songs this long so that was a nice surprise for me well that brings us to the end of side one of pantera's far beyond driven on i fucking love this record with my special guest simon blackburn now as i mentioned at the top of the show you do your own podcast called Mm -hmm. take my tone uh why don't you tell my listeners a little bit more about that okay so take my tone is all about music discovery so it's a podcast where two people swap songs to find out if opposites attract or react. So each episode features myself and a different guest, and it's released weekly. Pretty much uh, you can get it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, past guests include the Derek Caraview, which we mentioned at the Yay. start on uh, episode 51. So we compared songs from the Afghan Wigs and something for Kate. So they were shared and compared. And yeah, you can uh, check out the show at takemytone.com. What made you decide to to start this podcast? So I spent about four years doing tech podcasting. So I got to at least get through the whole learning process of what podcasts are all about and how to do it and, you know, covering those hurdles that you get in terms of, you know, recording setup and all that sort of stuff. So I, I at least got through the awkward phase per se. And then I just sort of found myself, because I was doing stuff on a bit of a tech news cycle, it, the episodes become a bit throwaway, like they're out, outdated a week later. And I wanted something that I could sort of produce a podcast of something that I was passionate about, but was still going to be relevant, still listenable, however long down the track. So I thought, okay, let's just, um, I love talking about music. I'm really into you know my hard rock and metal I want people to share with me music they love, any genre. I don't care. Like, open my mind. So there's a way for me, like myself, to push myself out of my own boundaries as well as give my sort of world of music to other people 
so you know some people might have reservations about oh metal's all about this and that and preconceived ideas and it's like no i want to kind of get across that okay this is how i like it and sometimes it lands sometimes it doesn't but uh that's all that's all the fun and i think it's i'm really just trying to bring it back to how you talk to a friend or how you talk to someone you meet and you're just at a gathering and you just start talking about music trying to capture that vibe but sort of keeping it fresh because any genre goes rotating guests and everything it's one of those shows that now because as i said i've gone through that sort of initial phase of learning how to podcast that i'm still perfectly happy with episode one and i think it's great that i can say that about a show there's no cringiness uh, for me it's, it's a really fun show, and I like how you just focus on one song each. You didn't try to go the album route or, you know, oh, or, or a list or something. It's like, I like this song. I'm going to send it to you. You like that song. You send it to me. Mm-hmm. Let's hash this shit out. Exactly. And I love it. It's such, a, it's such a great, snappy format. Most of the episodes are, what, about 25, 35 minutes long? Yes, something like exactly. that. Yep. And so it's one of the, because there's a couple of podcasts that I, I love and they're, they're long. And so you look at it, you're like, all right, I know that's going to take me two days to get through because <laughs> you know, I have kids and I have a job and I have all this other stuff. And when yours comes up, I'm like, I'm going to be able to do that before I get to work. Cool, <laughs> you know, cool. well, back, when, back when we were allowed to leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really impressive. And, and I, I enjoy I enjoy what you're doing. And it's been, uh, you know, I, I haven't listened to all of them because you got quite a few, but I'll skip around, especially if it's a, if it's a song that I recognize or a song that I like, mm-hmm. uh, it's yep. fun, especially with just one of them. Then I get to hear the other one and see what the what the deal is. So awesome! Oh, thanks very much. And now we're going to hear a word from one of our friends. Hi, I'm Leah, and I'm Bethann, and we're She Will Rock You. She Will Rock You is a bi-weekly podcast about rock history. Each episode, we talk about an artist in their lives, but we do it a little differently. You see, we noticed there was a lack of ladies hosting music podcasts, so we wanted to fix it. And here we are, two badass millennial ladies talking about rock music our parents wouldn't let us listen to. As a bonus, you'll even get our beer recommendations at the end. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, don't don't do drugs! And now, back to the show. All right, so we're going to flip this record over, track seven, Slaughtered. This is just a nuclear blast to start side two. <laughs> this is the song I think that owes most to the thrash scene that they were never quite 100% a part of. Uh, I think if you were to take any of their songs and say why they would be considered thrash at all, I think you could you could use this one. Again, it's less than four minutes. It's, it's a, just a, a quick blast to start side two. Now, that's, I've always listened to this uh, on CD. I, I don't have this one on vinyl, so I've never listened to it that way. So I've never really thought about this as starting side two until I was doing the research for this because yeah, I like to, you know, <laughs> I, you know, like to split it up just to, so we have a chance to talk to the guest and uh, and so then sometimes I'll have that pause because I'm making notes and then looking what I want to do and then hitting that again and it was like, yeah, this is a great side two opener mm. and that was even something i thought I, I you know something i did recognize when i would listen to things on cd like if i went into i remember going to my you know my favorite record place that had you know new and used cds and if i saw something that was interesting or that I, or I wanted to get and they had listening stations that you could listen to the used cds and if i didn't have time to really go through everything or if i had a stack or if there was a line i would always listen to track one and three one and two and then I would skip to whatever was about the halfway point, mm. uh, you know, track six or seven generally, because I found that a lot of my favorite records, I really loved track six or track seven. And that kind of hit me like, oh, because that's probably track one on side two. Yes. I, you know, this is not my favorite song on the album, but I do really like the song. And much like Strength Beyond Strength, I think this really serves a purpose in the placement of the record and especially coming off this seven minute long song so even if you're listening to it digitally or on cd just this this really good gut punch face punch 
<laughs> kick you when you're down kind of song uh, is is really well placed on the album. What did you think of this one? Yeah, so it's so interesting that you mentioned about the whole thinking of CDs as, as a side too, because you know that there is a, a an age difference between us two, right? And so I only ever grew up knowing when I was really young it was tapes, but CDs, right? So I, mm. while vinyl has had its resurgence. I've never, and I have some vinyl, I just have them there for display purposes. I don't have them there for listening purposes. So I never think of things inside A and B. And that's uh, a really cool thing to think about. I, I think for myself, just being in a band and just thinking about some of my favorite albums, it's like, do those midway tracks hit off like a good side too? So uh, yeah, I, I think this one certainly does. So I agree. It's To me, this is the best of Vinny. I think this is the the drum song on the album. The opening is is so immediate. I really love it. And the muffled vocal style in this makes his vocals sound even more aggressive. There's just something very just punching you each time he's delivering that. Uh, and it's it, it's full on. It definitely matches the music. And unfortunately, I, I kind of get a bit bored of the riff in the verses and the chorus because it's sort of just like an extension of the opening of the song because I think the opening is so good. But then it sort of flips back around, grabs my interest again midway because the music is just in full attack mode. You got this persistent double kick, and you got the bit. I'm like, love that. I'm just so I'm vibing on that so hard. Um, I think I'm sort of headbanging at triple speed at that point. But um, uh, <laughs> and I think the the bridge, the symbol work is so phenomenal. Um, and the footwork at the end really like takes the lead of the song so yeah i think in terms of a hey you want to hear what vinnie can do in pantera i'd play people this one uh except for me the this next track is is the one where i mentioned the drums so let's just go on to track uh, eight 25 years What are your thoughts here? So the opening riff actually reminds me of Rage Against the Machine. It's kind of got that walking fretboard sort of style thing. Uh, that sort of then transitions into these the the classic metal toms that you, that you sort of then heard with a lot of uh, heavy bands that followed. That sort of like toms, toms being used in the intro of a song. I think the verse vocals in this are the epitome of Phil's strained and tight delivery. It it just sounds so like so tight but so hard at the same time and it's it's so real i really love what he's doing here i also love the the offbeat change that happens with the drums and the bass it's almost like a halftime disco beat uh and then you've got this like galloping kick that comes in it's really cool um because of that the song sort of like plods along but then at the last minute and a half you sort of get this resolve and you get this fully animated pantera and then this song finishes with a fade out which also made me think there's been a decent amount of fade-outs so far that I was kind of like, what happened to metal fade-outs? They've sort of been gone out of favor, but I love a good fade-out. I reckon they're great. I have no problems with them. So, uh, And this is the one where, because the drums are just cavernous at the beginning of this song. Mm. Um, you can, If you were at the bottom of this drum fill, you could not see the top, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're just, it's huge. And th- this is where in my notes I actually wrote that, you know, well, Dimebag Daryl got a lot of the attention. Vinnie Paul was no slouch. Mm. And this was a guy, this was a guy, I mean, they, you know, obviously they were brothers. They, they played in bands together their whole lives. Listening to another podcast about this band, I found out, which I didn't know that uh, apparently Dimebag Daryl had been invited to join Megadeth. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And he said he would only join if, uh, if Vinny his was brother drums. could join it. Yeah. 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 And so apparently Mustaine didn't want to do that. But, uh, which, would, you know, just trying to think of, and, and I'm sure because, you know, Dave Mustaine was, is who he is as, as far as a band leader. So I'm sure he would have found a way to both make his sound work and to kind of mold him into what he wanted. But the thought of, you know, Pantera style guitars and Megadeth. I can't get no. my brain around that at all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I really like the song. And again, it's like with this one is just over six minutes long. 
but I don't have a problem with that. I think just because of that that whole intro part and with the drums and how great all that sounds, uh, that even though it does, it, it, like you even said, where it maybe wears a little bit thin, but they find ways to, to kind of grab you back in uh, throughout the song. And it's, uh, it's a good one. Mm, awesome. So track nine, Shedding Skin. And this is another awesome opening riff. Uh, you know, you mentioned you're in a band. So do you play guitar? I'll play drums. You play drums. Okay. Because mm-hmm. you, you've talked a lot about the guitar and you obviously come from a perspective that you know what you're talking about, whereas I don't play guitar. So I just make shit up uh, <laughs> as far as, you know, think, not so much like what, what it is, but I don't know the words that like, I don't know the real words that you would use it because for this one, I love the, the rising feeling to the riff. It feels like it's moving upwards and outwards. And it's just a cool effect on, on how he's playing. And I really like that. And there's a lot of different things going on here vocally. And this is where I think, you know, you've mentioned a few times about, you know, the style that he brings. And I feel like this is a good example of mm. a lot of the different things that he can do because yes. he's not doing just one thing. And a lot of times if, he, if he's shouting, he's shouting at you or if he's being sleazy, he's being sleazy at you. This is one of the times where I feel like you're seeing a couple of different sides of Phil and it's to, to really good effect. Uh, this is another just a terrific metal song in at five and a half minutes. What did you think of this one? This is possibly my second or third favorite on the album. I I really, really love this one. I way prefer the creepy whisper spoken vocals on this song as opposed to the one that we we're talking about before that was a bit more throwaway. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it just it works the because twi- you got that kind of like that's eerie guitar and it just it just sits so much better um i really love when he he pops out with the i was betrayed one more day sort of thing it it it's got groove it's got like it's this cool little vocal hook and it's not even the chorus yet um and then when you get to the chorus it's got this really cool mechanical sort of reverby mix of a yell and a drum hit with that at the start of each line so cool because I always remember that when it comes when it comes to this song, right? Um, and then even you sort of uh, by this point, I haven't been overly attached to or digging into his lyrics. I've come, I've been listening to what he's saying, and I know very convicting. But there's something about this one that I, I wanted to go in and see what he was saying, and I really like the line. But I found the guts to sever from my Siamese twin, and so these sort of lyrical themes of separation and change are something that I often channel into or are drawn to. I also think musically it's got a really interesting uh, change with the the dub. There's this one point where Phil is repeating the the words "the fear," and then you get this sort of double time snare come in, and it and then suddenly the whole song is elevated. The riff is elevated. The tempo is is faster. And it really matches the theme of the song of like shedding my skin. I'm beyond my former self. You know, I've, I've separated from that. And just musically, it's telling us that story. And it's really cool. So I just, even speaking about it just now, I'm kind of getting goosebumps just thinking about that because I, I just find something about like, like a true telling in, in terms of like how a, a vocalist writes lyrics about these types of themes that it feels like it's something that's very personal but inspirational for the listener and i yeah i absolutely love this song yeah and it's a highlight on on side two i think if you were to throw this one on side one i don't know if i would flip the record over like if yeah. you took the, the la- <laughs> if you took the last two tracks on side one and put it on side two and, and flip this one over uh, yeah i don't know i <laughs> But this is, yeah, a highlight here is, is great. Uh, so track 10, Use My Third Arm. Yeah, 
What do you think? Well, first of all, I wasn't sure what he meant by the the song title. I wasn't sure if it was like a dick reference or something. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but either way, whether it is or not, um, this is unrelenting. It introduces some tremolo picked sections, which is kind of like Pantera's take on death metal. It's got brutal lyrics. It's just pure energy from like the start to about the midway. You get this cool sort of bluesy middle, and then it's back to full energy for the last third. It's the heaviest song on the album. It's a good song, but as it's kind of less groovy, as you said, it's it's shed away from what they had on Cowboys from Hell. I tend to forget about it in terms of having a lasting impact. Like it's it's still solid, but I can't ever if someone says to me this song, I can't exactly remember how it goes, except for I know that it was like fast and heavy. It's funny because I'm exactly the same way uh, <laughs> as far as it goes because. This is the one when looking at the record, I could remember at least a bit of every song except for this one. Mm. And I looked at that one and I could never quite remember. I, I like it, but I don't have a whole lot to say about it. And I think like if you were to try to trim this album down to a 10 track album instead of a 12 track album, getting rid of a bottle of pills and this one, I don't think you'd miss it because it, uh, it is a little bit of an outlier in how, how much heavier it is, but without bringing anything interesting or special. Mm. You know, like, again, not to say it's a bad song. It's a good song, but it's not a great song. And one, I don't know if I would miss if it wasn't there. I think it's more of like a technical flex in terms of like, hey, look at all this like fast parts that we can play and kind of like a, a showcase of aggression. But I think if they possibly spent more time on the songwriting, maybe, then they could have resulted in something a bit sticks in your mind a bit more. Yeah. So such as track 11, Throws of Rejection. I really love the bass and drum interplay mm, right mm. after that opening lick. There's kind of like this throwaway guitar lick at the beginning. And then it's just, here's our rhythm section. And here's why this band is fucking great. You yes. Know? Yes. The other two, the other two guys are, are what you're looking at. We're the reason why you're actually here. You just don't know it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's fantastic. And then, you know, the, the guitar parts come flying in and then it's just, you know, him singing from that kind of desperate place that he comes from at times. And I really like this track. What did you think of this one? With the one that follows Planet Caravan being a cover, I sometimes I don't know whether I regard that as the closer or not. But if you're thinking of this mm. as the closer, it's, it, it's an awesome way to go. I think it's very dynamic. As you said, that bass and drum lock-in, I'm totally on board for that. And also what I love is this is kind of like the, it's almost like a sweet little conversation between the the Abbott brothers. You've got the guitar and drums having this, almost having this conversation with that double kick being like the talk back. And I just find that really cool. It's just the thinking of, you could almost imagine playing this live and just looking at each other and just playing the parts back and forth, almost like they're just having this conversation without actually physically speaking the chorus it sticks right out with like him yelling rejection and man the instrumental break in this song the timing fuckery is so good like it is so, it's like I, i'm trying to keep up with it and it's not like in the in the sake of like oh look we can play you know 13 over seven and a half or something like that prog sort of thing it's more just like this wild kind of like heavy rock sort of groovy just jam feel going on that is it's like loose but tight at the same time like it's played so well but it just feels so alive and then the fact that you're ending this song in this like dying swarm type riff it just sounds great as a way to just kind of like pull all this energy right down like it sounds like this this 
as I said, like if you think of it as a swarm of bees or something, it's just something that's full, completely venomous and, and, and full of energy. And it's like the whole collective is just slowing down and dying with this downward sort of sound. It's almost like someone's holding the, the, the vinyl and actually physically just like slowing it down. Um, Banks for a really cool closer. So I think, yeah, perfect way to end the album if you were to think of it that way. Track 12, which is, like you said, a, a cover of Black Sabbath's classic Planet Caravan. It's a great song, and this, but it almost has that, like you said, because of how track 11 goes out, this almost feels like at one point maybe they considered making it a hidden track. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, so like whereas Throws of Rejection would have been the official closer because, you know, God, they love their, their hidden tracks in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> I could almost see that in this case, but it's not. It's, it's right there on the, on the track listing and everything, and it's great, and it's, but it's really straightforward. They don't try to Pantera it up. And I don't know, yeah. sometimes I like that and sometimes I don't like that. I don't know because the original is, is great. It's got those creepy vocals. I think Anselmo really nails the vocals in his own style here. So he doesn't try to do the the watery, creepy vocals because it's not even Ozzy singing on this one. Yeah. I can't remember if it is, uh, is it Bill Ward that sings it? I don't remember anymore. I used to know, but now I can't remember. Geezer Butler. One of the non-Ozzy guys was singing that <laughs> one, on that one. I like that they didn't try to do that. Like, so the, the music is fairly straightforward, but I feel mm. like he also did, he did the vocals straightforward, but not a straightforward cover, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so, exactly. They didn't mess with the structure or anything. It's just, yeah, a, a, a faithful cover. And those are sometimes fun. And sometimes it's like, why do I need a faithful cover when I can go listen to the original? So, you know, I, I go really back and forth on this one. Sometimes I love it. And sometimes I just wonder, why does it exist? Well, I find this, um, I actually find this quite, a, if you were to think of this as a closer and part of, and it is part of the official track listing, I actually find it quite a good choice because Black Sabbath, right? So very, like Tony Iommi, very blues driven sound. They're very much the band that forged metal in terms of its existence, right? And oh, yeah. And with Pantera, being bluesy based groovy riffs there's that direct kind of like influence of like having a sabbathy style riff right so i think in terms of just channeling their 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 inner influence it, it, it's almost like they're going to pay homage to their most influence the, the band that most influenced them right and so mm. i think that is great but then they've then gone with the song a choice of cover that is a complete departure of anything related to heaviness and but it's more of this like southerny acoustic flavor whilst it is a cover i think it's a good choice to end such a wild album it's just like a it's, it's almost it's eerie but it's a nice sort of like calming kind of like push out to to see sort of thing after the complete just like in your face experience they've given you up until that point so I'm glad that they haven't made this a heavy Pantera song. But yeah, you, you could take it off. You could include it, however. But Faithful Cover, Calm Ending, I think it's a pretty good choice. And I'm a sucker for a slow closer. I've said that same sentence probably 25 times on this show. So I don't have a problem with that <laughs> because they didn't try to go out with like a ballad or they didn't, you know. So they found a way to go out on, on a mellow note while still having that, you know, it's Sabbath. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's a good... It's a it's a good tune and I never skip it. I listen to it all the time. But just anytime, I, what I mean, like, why does it exist? I think more about when a, a lot of times with faithful covers, it's like, why? I like this one. And I think the answer is because it fits well. It's a good way to close the record. That answers my question and I'm happy with it. I'm, you know, But there's other times when you're like, that doesn't sound that different from the original. Why am I not listening to the original? Yeah. Okay, I also think it's a really good way to introduce the more melodic side of Phil that you then got to experience with bands that came afterwards, like Down. So 
like my experience with Phil as a vocalist was from down first. Like I bought a couple of their albums and, and I was quite into them. If full well knowing it from Pantera, I just I'd spent more time in that sort of like facet of his his musicality. So it yeah, it's almost like this slight little hint at a at a transition point of like what Phil could become. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way because I, I never got into Down. I've heard it, but I think my experience with Down was like your previous experience with Pantera. It's something I know about, and uh, uh, some friends of mine who love Pantera also love Down, and one of those I just haven't gotten around mm, to it. Maybe that's fine. Simon, what are your final thoughts about this record? Why have I not been listening to Pantera more beforehand? That is my final <laughs> thoughts. I'm, I am so glad that this is technically now my entrance album into such an influential band. I was always found it funny the the whole story about how previously you know the original cover being a screw into the X-ray of someone's behind rather than a skull uh, was mm-hmm. the was the original cover to this album. So I always knew that little sort of like trivia tidbit, uh, and I thought, okay, well, okay, that's that's just something funny to know. But yeah, this this album itself uh, being referenced a lot alongside Vulgar Display mostly. So yeah, the the fact that you brought this up, I thought, well, better, what better chance to to go go full Pantera, and um, yeah, I'm actually I'm keen to check out then Volga and Cowboy, sort of knowing that that's kind of like the, as I said earlier, the the holy trinity of Pantera. Yeah, well, I I wish you uh, Godspeed with your journey. It's a it's a fun one. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and because I, I know people, I know people who swear by Vulgar Display of Power, and others with I'm more of a Cowboys from Hell. And, and this one, I was really happy kind of revisiting this one. I hadn't listened to it in a long time. And when we were talking about trying to find some place where we had overlap and we decided to go with this one. And, but I remember saying to you first, like, let me listen to it to see if I still love it. <laughs> and I was pleasantly surprised that I do, cause I don't listen to a lot of heavy music right now. And so yep. revisiting some of my youth, it's like, there's times when, cause I listened to heavy metal exclusively in high school, but it was more say standard heavy metal into thrash. So whether you're talking about, you know, Motley Crue or Metallica, Slayer, some suicidal tendencies, and then like Danzig and stuff. And so I liked uh, a lot of different stuff, but I I was really only listening to metal. Mm, And then in mm. college, I started listening to other stuff, but were still, you know, I didn't completely give up on metal, but I was listening to, to different things. And then I ended up becoming the metal director of my radio station because nobody else wanted to do it and i was the only one who had any experience listening to metal so i ended up doing it and listening to quite a bit of metal during this time so i i was listening to this and and marilyn manson and, and monster magnet and that first corn record and a few other things but you know probably a, a lot more things because i was playing metal a metal show at least twice a week yes this is one that's really kind of stuck with me because i really really like pantera to begin with and kind of followed them through and i just but this is one of the last records i didn't really get into southern trend kill ah yes i always forget about that one yeah and i don't and i think it was just i was completely off the metal train when that came out Mm. and at that point i was listening to a lot of other things that i you know i'd still listen to metal kind of like older stuff that i used to like but i wasn't searching for new because i didn't like a lot of new metal so just in general like i liked that first corn record i didn't think corn sound was going to take over all of radio for the next decade mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh and then just the watered down versions and you know it was when i heard you know limp biscuits three dollar bills y'all i'm like nope metal's just not being made for me anymore because i thought that record was garbage sorry if you like that one i apologize oh, i i i, I, I actually i really hope that's my favorite like i i in terms of so Limp Bizkit became like, I guess, once they exploded, super exploded around uh, chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water um, and, and everyone would bag on them. And I was that guy that was like, no, you have to listen to the first record. It's so good. And like, I still love it. It's just, I think that just shows the generational difference uh, uh, between the both of us. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And and I bought that one mainly just because, you know, I think that's when... Ah, it doesn't matter. It was you know, early internet days and there was a lot of people talking mm. about it. And so I went out and bought it and I then sold it back about a week later because I just did not like it. Uh, and I think it was just at that point, I was probably mid mid to late 20s and mm. just, just beyond. So going back to revisit this for the show has been great because these guys really had it. You know, they, you know, it wasn't just that it was heavy and so I liked it. You know, there's, there's a, a lot to it and it's, it's a, it's a good record. 
it's a great record and one that I'm happy to uh, to have shared with. Uh, you know, sometimes we need that excuse to go listen to a band. It's like we know about them, we've heard about them, but it's like oh, I'm gonna, I don't know, you know. And so having that way to enter it has been has been great. So real pleasure talking with you uh, about this one oh definitely yeah Th- thanks very much for for the opportunity and it's funny because um you know when you sort of we decided okay this was the album that we're going to discuss and i saw okay there was the original version the remastered version and i tried off the bat listening to the first version and i jumped straight into the remastered one just because obviously my uh, i guess sort of being younger my my ears were sort of tuned to that sort of the start the more modern leaning production that they had on the remastered version but i end funnily enough ended up accidentally just listening to the original version several times anyway and it didn't bother me by that point because i think i was just so drawn in by the actual songs that the idea of like okay this this the guitar on the original sounds a bit too tubular or the drums have lost a bit of low end on the original versus remastered none of that bothered me because i was just so into the songs itself that's interesting because I ended up listening, I think, to the remastered because that's just what's available on Spotify generally. Yes. You know, yep. so I try not to listen to extended versions, just the original. Even if it's been remastered, then I didn't feel like digging out my CD and then having to, you know, yeah. force my children to listen to it on the CD player. I could you know do the <laughs> headphones and stuff. So, so those of you out there listening, if you have not done so already, I would encourage you to, uh, you know, maybe like or subscribe share, comment. If you could comment on Apple iTunes, apparently that helps with the algorithm so people can find the show. Uh, I really enjoy doing the show. My guests seem to enjoy doing the show. They come yeah. back. Uh, I would love to have you out there. You know, you know, give me, give me a, a, a cool re- review because nobody's done that yet and it hurts my feelings. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so Simon, one more time, the name of your show is Take My Tone. Yes. Do you have any social media? Is it Take My Tone at Twitter, Facebook, all, all that good stuff? Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just search Take My Tone. Simon, once again, thank you so much for joining. I had a fantastic time with this conversation. Thank you so much and goodbye. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.